Well, how many of you have ever had a summer job? Some of you have to think back a long way to uh, remember your teenage years or your student years, summer job. How many of you had a summer job that you really didn't like very much? Yeah. When I was 20, I had a summer job only for about four weeks, working for a marquee hire firm. And I had a friend whose dad ran the company, and uh, we were working on uh, hauling canvases. Uh, you used to have to load up the lorries early in the morning. Uh, great big heavy canvases and uh, tent poles, which were about that diameter, really long, heavy wooden tent poles. Uh, very heavy uh, tent pegs, metal tent pegs, sledgehammers, chairs, dance floor sections. Uh, we just had to carry it all onto the lorries. And then we would drive somewhere like North London, and then we'd have to take it all off the lorries, uh, take it down some alleyway into somebody's back garden and set it all up, put up the marquees, put up the inside of it, and all the rest of it. It was really hard physical work. And for four weeks, my body ate every, every hour of every, every day. It was a pretty tough job. And uh, the thing that kept me going was that I knew at the end of four weeks that I was going up to Birmingham to see my fiancée and spend time with her. Uh, my fiancée, Cathy, is now my wife. And so I would you know, go out on the lorries and occasionally I would see sort of signs to you know, Birmingham and further north and think, in four weeks' time, I'm going to be driving up the M40 and I'm going to see uh, Cathy. And so that kept me going. And I wonder if you've ever looked forward to something uh, which has just helped you get through the here and now, helped you get through the tough moments you're going through. Uh, teachers always seem to be looking forward to the school holidays, don't they? And parents are always looking forward to when the term starts again. And uh, so there's always, it's good to have something on the horizon which helps you get through. Well, in the Bible passage we're looking at today, we find that Paul is able to press through many hardships associated with being an apostle because he's thinking about what lays ahead. He's thinking about the heavenly goal. We're in this series called Power in Weakness, as Simon's just said. And in the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been uh, telling them why he's had to change his plans uh, and hasn't been able to visit them yet. And then also is telling them about his apostleship and defending that and saying, no, I am the genuine article. There had been uh, false teachers infiltrating the church at Corinth and Paul is saying, look, don't be misled. Uh, we've got the genuine gospel and uh, we are uh, apostles. And then in chapter 3, he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's telling them that the old covenant is great, but it's sort of based on the law. But the new covenant is far superior and is based on the work of the Spirit. And then as we get into chapter 4, he starts to talk about this treasure of the gospel, which are in jars of, of clay. And Hillary was speaking about that last week, and he's talking about this gospel treasure that we carry within us, even though we are very frail as human beings. So today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 5, 10. And I'm going to read that passage now, so it'll come up on the screen. <clears throat> Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, another dense passage from Paul uh, for us to unpack this morning. And I want to look at it in three sections. And the first section is all about persevering in our faith. Do not lose heart, it says in chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. That's the essential message in those verses. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is a reference back to verse 1 of chapter 4, where Paul uses the same phrase. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Paul and his colleagues have been called by God to communicate the gospel and to fulfill their apostolic ministry. As they proclaim this new covenant, this covenant of the spirit rather than the law. And he is confident in his calling and he refuses to be downcast. He refuses to lose heart. They were physically wasting away. They were being challenged again and again. And they were going through all sorts of physical challenges. But inwardly, he says, we're continuing to be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So in verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, listen, we've been hard pressed, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, struck down. But despite all the opposition, despite the frustrations, he passes them all off in verse 17 as light and momentary troubles. We can lose heart, he's saying, when we lose that eternal perspective. Yes, there are uh, frustrations. There are things that perplex us. Uh, Life doesn't always unfold in the way we would like it to. There are things that mystify us sometimes. Paul knew all about that. If you think you've had a tough time, think about some, some of the things he went through. He went through imprisonment and torture and shipwreck. He was misunderstood by other people. He fell out with some people, with Barnabas in particular. 
so he went through all sorts of challenges, and yet he talks about these as light and momentary. He's able to do that because he's got his eyes fixed on the future. And that's what he says in verse 18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. So we live in this this world and we sort of feel that what we're seeing is real and permanent. But he's saying, no, it's what is unseen which is real. It's what is unseen which is really the permanent thing. So the thing that keeps him going is the knowledge that the gospel is spreading through the world. And he's got this heavenly home ahead of him. It spurred him on. You know, it's so easy for us to lose heart on the Christian journey. It's easy for us to to get discouraged and to lose heart when another Christian lets us down. And we think, oh, I thought they were a Christian. Why did they behave like that? Why did they say that to me? Or we lose heart when church leaders make decisions. Or sometimes, I mean, for good reasons, they make good decisions. But it impacts us personally. And we get a bit disgruntled about the decision that's being made. Or sometimes church leaders just make mistakes. And we're affected by that. And we can lose heart when that happens. We can lose heart when we see other people fall into serious sin or choose very different lifestyles. They've been with us in, in the fellowship, in the church, and maybe at some point they've decided, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with this, I'm going to choose a different lifestyle. And we can lose heart when we see that happen. We can lose heart when close Christian friends, people that we were with at the very beginning when we became Christians, we see that they're nowhere near a church now. and We lose heart over that. We think, why have they drifted away from God? We lose heart when we fall into sin ourselves and we feel that we've let ourselves down. We lose heart when prayer isn't answered, when somebody that you love dearly continues to suffer or struggle in some way. We lose heart when we get over-familiar with God's grace and his love and we take it for granted. We lose heart when we get worn down by troubles and anxieties and worries. We feel our lives are, are full enough sometimes with all the other stuff we've got to do and doing church, praying, reading our Bibles just becomes another chore. We're trying to tick the faith box and it's just another thing we've got to fit into our busy lives. And then we drift away from God and we begin to lose heart. It's easy to lose heart on the Christian journey. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the eternal home that we're heading towards. We have to remember also that we have this very valuable treasure within us. The gospel which has life transforming impact. Recently I was uh, at, at one of the Alpha evenings and it was just good chatting to one or two people there particularly one guy who was really seeking after God and asking some fantastic questions really open not there yet just moving towards and making a commitment of faith and you realize in those moments when you speak to people that do not have a faith uh, what treasure we have within us and we must not lose sight of that. That's why it's good for us to share our faith in different ways on different occasions. Because when we do, we realize again how precious that gospel message is and how life-transforming it is and what it's done in our own lives and what it can do in other people's lives. But if we don't share our faith, if we forget how powerful the gospel is, we can lose heart. 
We need to remind ourselves of what God's done in our lives. What, where would we have been if we hadn't have found Christ or he hadn't have found us, put, put it more accurately. Because we could be anywhere. We could have, our lives could have gone off at any tangent if we hadn't decided at some point to follow Christ. We need to remind ourselves of all the good things that God has done for us in our lives rather than focus on the things that haven't worked out. It's easy, isn't it, just to focus on those things which haven't gone right. Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't my kids get a place at that nursery or that school or that university? Why am I struggling with various health problems? Everybody else seems to be very fit and healthy. Why am my family going through a tough time? When is God going to answer my prayers? I'm fed up with hearing about other people's prayers being answered. What's wrong with my prayers? Does God not like me any longer? We can get discouraged. We can lose heart quickly. We can get disappointed when things don't work out the way things we, we would love things to work out. And then we want to blame somebody. And we blame God. He's an easy target. And if we can't get to God, we blame somebody who's in leadership in a church usually because they're the substitute, aren't they? Paul fixes his eyes on this unseen future, which he says is permanent rather than the temporary life we have now. And so in this next section, he is comparing our earthly bodies with our resurrection bodies. So in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, he really takes these two images of a tent or a house. Tent or house. Now, how many of you have ever been camping? Okay. First time I went camping was when I was a teenager, and my mum decided she was going to buy a frame tent, and we were going to go away for some weekends, which we did over a number of years, and uh, put this frame tent up in some field somewhere in Oxfordshire and enjoy ourselves for the weekend. And, but the very first time we went away, we went to a place called Billing Aquadrome near Northampton. Anybody been to Billing Aquadrome? Okay, you haven't missed very much. <laughs> It's a big field, and there's some great facilities there. The weekend we went, uh, it was very windy. So we put up this frame tent uh, in the, on an extremely windy day, and uh, we got it up, struggled to get it up, and after about 10 minutes of this frame tent standing, one of the frames actually broke because the wind was so strong. And I remember standing inside holding these, these, these two bits of tent pole up, and my mum and my uncle, my uncle's family come with us as well, they, they went off to try and find another frame tent or find somewhere fixing this thing. And for 40 minutes I was standing there holding this frame tent up in this wind, trying to keep it upright. And they came back, my arms were so tired at the end of 40 minutes, they came back and they said, we can't find any way of fixing it, we can't find an alternative tent, so we'll just have to pack up and go home. And so we did, and our first camping trip lasted about eight hours. <laughs> I don't mind camping, but I don't want to live in a tent for the rest of my life. A house is a better option. In these verses, Paul compares our bodies to tents that would eventually wear out. So our soul or our spirit, that thing which continues through into eternity, is currently housed in a tent, something which is temporary, something which is wasting away. But... The good news is that God has prepared a house, something much more permanent for us, so that our, we can live in that house for eternity. Resurrection bodies. It's a building built by God. On the last bank holiday Monday, Kathy and I went to Elton Palace, which uh, is only just up the road from where we live. 
uh, and we'd wanted to go there for some while. And it, Elton Palace is a really interesting place. It's been a royal residence since the 14th century when Edward II lived there. And various royals have lived in Elton Palace over the years and the centuries, including Henry VIII. And much of his boyhood was spent there. And then it fell into disrepair in sort of the 1800s, early 1900s, until 1930, around the 1930s, when Stephen and Virginia Courtauld took up the lease of that property and rebuilt the house. And this is the house. And they, they just put all mod cons in there, and it was sort of up-to-date 1930s house. Art Deco, beautifully designed, lavishly uh, decorated, and uh, no expense spared. So it's so a remarkable place. But you know that in a few hundred years' time, there will be people that will feel, well, this is of no historical value. They will have forgotten about the Courtaults. It will fall into disrepair again. Uh, English heritage might not exist then to keep it going. And uh, eventually, everything falls apart in this world. Everything wears out. Everything ends. But Paul is saying, look, but there's a permanence coming up. There's, there's a resurrection body which will be forever. There is a heavenly city that we will live in forever. It doesn't seem very real to us because we can't see it now, but he is saying it is real. It's coming up in the future. So let me summarize what Paul is saying in verses 2 to 5, which is quite confusing when you read it. He says, I'm longing to inhabit my resurrection body in the future, uh, but that will only become available when Jesus returns. So those who die in Christ uh, will lose their physical body. That your physical body stops and your spirit and your soul carries on living. But you won't get your resurrection body until Jesus returns. So there's a gap. So if I die today, uh, I will be with Christ. I will know his presence, but I will be in some sort of disembodied state uh, with Christ If you remember, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And so that reality of the presence of Jesus, the moment we die, is is certain. That's what the Bible teaches. But we don't get our resurrection bodies until Jesus returns. And so there's this gap between the, the sort of physical body and the resurrection body. The theologians call it the intermediate state. So you don't need to worry about you know, whether, what kind of body I'm going to have immediately the moment I die. That will come. The resurrection body will come eventually. And Paul's sort of be, you know, between these sort of two things. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 5 he says, But God has designed us for this very purpose, to live for eternity. He has given us the Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee that this will definitely come to pass. So if you've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you know something of the the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, be encouraged. That is your deposit guaranteeing that one day you'll have a resurrection body and therefore you will live for eternity. And then in the final section, Paul contrasts living in an earthly body with living in the Lord's presence. And he uses the phrase home or away. Now, I like watching undemanding TV occasionally, and A Place in the Sun, Home or Away, is one of those programs which is uh, easy to watch when you're eating a meal. And uh, if you don't know the program, basically you have a couple that want to buy a holiday home, and you have two presenters that go head-to-head. 
And one presenter tries to convince them to buy a holiday home in the UK uh, where the prices are very high and it's raining all the time, even though <laughs> the villages in Dorset are very nice and pretty. And so they, we see a little bit of footage of them tramping around in the wet, uh, looking at different houses in the UK. And then the uh, other presenter, they go to the south of France or to Spain or somewhere around the Mediterranean and it's all sunshine and they're wearing their summer clothes and the prices are much lower. And so it always seems unfair to me that uh, one presenter's got a massive advantage over the other. And then the couple sort of decide whether they're going to buy at home or away. Now when Paul talks about home and away in this passage, he isn't weighing up the best options for a heavenly holiday home. For him, there is no doubt that he's going to be far better off away from the body and at home with the Lord. But he uses these sort of phrases interchangeably. He talks about you know, being at home with the Lord, but he also says being at home now in the body and away from the Lord. And then one day I'll be at home with the Lord and away from the body. And it all gets very confusing, this passage. So at the moment, we're at home in the body. And our present, present physical body means we're therefore away from the Lord. But he says we live by faith in eager expectation that a time will come when we'll be away from the physical body when we die and we'll be at home with the Lord. But he says wherever we are, whether we're home or away, we aim to please the Lord. And then finally in verse 10 he says, but we must appear before Jesus to be judged or to be assessed. So uh, as believers, if you've already believed in Christ, uh, you will uh, be assessed rather than judged because Jesus has justified you. He's made you right with God already. So you are in right standing with God if you have faith in Christ. But nevertheless, all believers will have an assessment for what they've done in the body, whether that's good or bad. So we'll be saved, but there'll be some sort of assessment, if you like, rather than judgment. Uh, If you're not a Christian, that's a different deal. That is a judgment. But as a believer, we also have to be assessed. So that's what he's saying there in verse 10. So the overall message in this passage is clear. Do not lose heart because there's a glorious future ahead of us. The best is yet to come. If we could capture something of Paul's certainty and his excitement about the future, then I think many of our uh, day-to-day troubles would seem a lot less important to us, less significant. My mother used to be fond of uh, saying various uh, quotes and sayings, uh, but she used to say, uh, some people are, uh, are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Anybody heard that? So heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Actually, Paul is saying the opposite. He's saying, the more heavenly-minded we are, the more earthly good we will do, because we can press on through all the, the troubles and the challenges on this earth now, because we've got such an understanding of where we're heading. So we do need to be heavenly minded and that will make us more effective here in communicating the gospel and pressing on in our Christian lives. I want to close by reading an abridged passage from John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. Two pilgrims called Christian and Hopeful are approaching the celestial land, but they must first cross the river of dread. Christian and Hopeful traveled on together until they came to a gate. Between them and the gate, there was a river, and there was no bridge, and the river was very deep. They were dismayed. But the men who were with them said, you must go through 
or you cannot get to the gate. Christian was greatly downcast by this answer. He began to wish he could escape, but Hopeful took him by the hand and cheered him with comforting words. As they came to the water's edge, they asked the men how deep the river was. You will find it deeper or shallower as you put your trust in the king, was their answer. So they stepped in. Then Christian felt himself beginning to sink and he cried out, Hopeful, my friend, I'm sinking in deep waters. The waves are covering me. But Hopeful answered, Be of good cheer, brother. My feet are on the bottom and it it is good. Still Christian cried out in his despair, I shall perish in this river. I shall never see the celestial land, the land of milk and honey. Hopeful had to make a great effort to keep his brother's head above water. And all the time, Hopeful encouraged him, Brother, I see the gate, he said. I see the men standing to welcome us. It's you they're waiting for, answered Christian. They wait for you and not for me. You've been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, answered Hopeful. Remember how you you kept your face turned towards the celestial land. Christian was silent for a time, as though in deep thought. And Hopeful said, Be of good cheer. We shall soon be on the other side. I I see the prince of the celestial land. I see him too, cried Christian. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Soon, the water became shallower. So they went on cheerfully and got over to the other side. As they came out of the water, two shining ones met them and greeted them. And they all walked towards the gate. Now the city stood on a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up with ease, for the shining ones helped them. They had also left their heavy garments behind in the river. So they went up with speed, though the city was higher than the clouds. The shining ones talked to them on the way and told them about the beauty of the place. You are now going, they said, to the paradise of our lords. There you shall see the tree of life. And eat of its never-fading fruits. There you should be clothed with glory and majesty. And you'll see the king as he is. Now, as they were drawing near to the gate, a great company came out to meet them. And the two shining ones said, These are the men who have loved our Lord and have left all for his sake. Then there was a great shout of welcome, and the king's trumpeters saluted them with loud music, and the great company surrounded them on every side, and all walked on together towards the gate. On their arrival, Christian and Hopeful identified themselves to the keepers of the gate, and the command was given that they should enter. The two men went in, and they were transfigured. Their clothing shone like gold. All the bells of the city rang out for joy, and a voice sweeter than any earthly music said to them, Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen.